Hello and welcome to the Criterion Quest, a continuing podcast series looking at important films and contemporary classics. My name is Chris and I'm joined as usual by my wonderful co-host Tom. Hello. And um, I guess cursory note off the top, um, we are doing our first separate record uh, yeah. from, from the isolation of our own homes. <laughs> That's right, it's full quarantine lockdown. Yeah, so we're uh, uh, hopefully going to blend these together. <laughs> it should work in a, you know, to create a full episode. But if there's like a kind of drop or change in quality or something, that is the explanation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I'm using one of the old microphones, so hopefully it's it's uh, mm. it's okay. Yeah, we got we got some new ones on the way. So uh, for this episode, at least, it, it might be a little bit chop and change, but. What can you do? Desperate times call for desperate desperate measures. That's right. Desperate times indeed. Mm. Actually, this might be a good time to mention, speaking of, of old microphones and whatnot, I think, Chris, you're looking into getting a Patreon set up so we can manage, see, hopefully, maybe, getting some money into to organize ourselves with, with new um, hardware and whatnot to keep us going. Yeah, yeah. Help kind of uh, keep the lights on, cover the server costs and better equipment and things. Um, we're kind of... I know it's a shitty and weird time to be asking listeners for money, um, <laughs> given that, like, everyone's out of work. <laughs> but um, it's, it's something we've been uh, kind of thinking about and kind of tooling with for a little bit now. So um, I guess we're, we're in the early stages of figuring that out, but um, just, I guess, keep an eye out for it. And I'll be posting about it in the near future, and we'll kind of figure out some cool tiers and some ideas for, like extra bonus stuff and, you know, little rewards and whatnot. But, um, yeah, so... Uh, also, if you have any ideas of some kind of cool stuff you'd want us to do on Patreon tiers, like, um, you know, commentary tracks or, you know, little videos or whatnot, uh, let us know, I guess. We'd love to hear your suggestions. Yeah. Anyway, let's talk about The Leopard, mm. 1963. Yes, uh, Lucino Visconti. Mm-hmm. Uh, based on the book of the same name... Uh, I think it was the only book published by the author, and it's highly regarded. Posthumously, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, highly regarded as one of the best Italian novels ever. Um, do you have the back of the the cover of the of the DVD slash Blu-ray? I do. I do indeed. I've got the Criterion website up and open. So, making its long-awaited U.S. home video debut, Lucino Visconti's *The Leopard* is an epic of the grandest possible scale. The film recreates with nostalgia, drama, and opulence the tumultuous years of Italy's... Mm, I knew I was going to hit this word and struggle with it. Risorgimento, uh, which is basically like... Is that the Italian unification? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you would say Italian unification instead of the Italian <laughs> term, which Italian. I always struggled with. <laughs> but anyway, uh, when the aristocracy lost its grip and the middle class rose and formed a unified democratic Italy... Bert Lancaster stars as the aging prince watching his culture and fortune wane in the face of a new generation represented by his upstart nephew and his beautiful fiancée. Awarded the Palm Door at the 1963 Cannes Film... Never mind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, cool. All right, so yeah, it's set in 1860, which is a year before the Italian unification, which is basically the Civil War that unified Italy. Yeah. Um... So, we're following a noble, a noble family, right before the economic free market becomes a, a big thing. Probably the biggest player, 
So I think like although it's an Italian historical piece, it applies to pretty much any Western nation. Yeah. Um, and even like China now and, you know, whatever. Mm. So while it's, while it's a very Italian film, it's, it's, it can be looked at from any angle, from any point of view in the world, I think. Is like it, a, it, it's a nice universal uh, story at the heart of it that, like, while set in Italy, like you said, it is, you know, a universal story about the changing times and either, you know, adapting or stepping out of the way or, you know, what have you. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I was kind of, I mean, I didn't really know anything about this uh, going in. And I suppose it, I could compare it to uh, Salvatore Giuliano. Okay, yeah. I suppose yeah. it's an Italian. I, I was yeah. kind of going, when it started, I was like, okay, this is a, an Italian history piece. Pretty, pretty fucking epic. And much more epic than Salvatore Giuliano, which we'd watched previously, I think like two months ago or something. Yeah, that, that was the uh, black and white, almost uh, pseudo documentary type feel to it. Yeah. Mm. And it kind of set itself apart from that as soon as basically as soon as it started because it pulls itself out from um, the nobility's houses and then starts this massive battle with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extras um and it's like it's as big as the godfather like it's fucking epic in scope well no i i would even see because i like the first kind of notes i wrote down was uh, let me just grab was uh, that you can clearly see from the outset of this film, like initially, like even during the title sequence, um, the influence it's had on Coppola in particular, like it just, the vistas and how everything looked just immediately made me think Godfather Part 2, all of the initial stuff that happens in Sicily with um, uh, uh, Corley, oh God, what's, I always forget is when he's little, what his name is. <laughs> but anyway, little Marlon Brando, yeah. when he's like fleeing yeah. Italy and his mother is killed and stuff. It just looks exactly like that film. But then when we hit the uh, the battle scene, it was just like, oh shit, this is just morphed into a David Lean film. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Bridge on the River Kwai or like Lawrence of Arabia style. Like it's just high angle camera sweeping, just taking in these giant vistas of like hundreds of extras and things. It, it was nuts. Uh, it was absolutely nuts, yeah. I mean, even even with The Godfather sharing the same themes of, you know, the old generation giving in to the new generation and new beginnings and whatnot, I think that's more focusing on, on Godfather 2, but it's also pretty prevalent in Godfather 1. So, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Coppola definitely digs this film, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, and I think I even, like, yeah, the other ones I had written down was, like, clearly Scorsese. I mean, he's time and time again considered this one of his favourite films of all time. Mm -hmm. And um, I also, in terms of camera placement, especially during those action scenes, um, or scenes where there was a lot of people, like, you know, a lot of staging going on, Sergio Leone, to some degree. Yeah, I got got some strong parallels with Sergio Leone, too. Um, mm, and not just the fact that Claudia Cardinale is in it yeah, as well. Yeah, a familiar face, Jill McBain from Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, even even Kubrick as well, like Barry Lyndon. I, were, I was reminded of Barry Lyndon as well. and With all the, the candlelight shots and things? Yeah, the candlelight shots and just letting every frame painting kind of just sit with you for extended periods of time. Yeah, and then, like, when there were scenes where it was, like, around a dinner, like, a long dinner table or something, you would have the camera kind of sweep in and almost take, like, right-angle turns and just kind of 
float around the room, which was, yeah, that's where I got the Scorsese and even some Spielberg, the, like, impressive one as he does, where he, like, he changes the framing within, without moving the actors, but by moving the camera. It was a lot of that. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenal film. I, I to be... To be honest, I, I, it took me a long time to really get involved because it's a three hour long film, you know, like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I just out of interest, I went on the Wikipedia page um, just to do a bit of research and the plot, the plot synopsis on Wikipedia is very short. It's, you know, six paragraphs and they're not long paragraphs uh, and it encompasses three hour long movie. So <laughs> it, things are drawn out. It's just a proof of this. Is, it. it- <laughs> it takes its yeah. time to like say that was the kind of interesting like the it's a very obviously very immense and amazing film but it is it does take its sweet time to say something that's pretty simple i, I don't mind i don't mind like just I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I also the ballroom sequence which is the 40 45 minute long scene towards the end really the end of the film the, essentially nearly the whole third act yeah i i timed when it started, which was a, the two hour 15 mark, I timed from there till when the scene actually did something in terms of forwarding some kind of plot or character device or something. And it took Instead of just it having t- people filing in and dancing yeah. and saying hi. It took six minutes for Don Fabrizio to have a conversation with his uh, nephew, mm. uh, Tancredi, and ask where's Angelica? It was six minutes before someone had a conversation that had any relevance to the plot. Yeah, and then, like, um, later... But... <laughs> later in that... But I don't mind, because it looked fucking beautiful, so... Yeah, it's that thing of, like, later in that scene as well, when Tancredi is, like, going around looking for his uncle to kind of say goodbye and things. Uh, it's, like, we just hold on a wide shot of, like, a ballroom where there's, like, four or six, like, straggling dancers still going, and it's, like, a minute, and then eventually Tancredi, like, walks across the room... <laughs> <laughs> it just like it looks gorgeous, and I get that. Like you know, is it that thing of like he's he's letting it draw out to like kind of lead into the opulence of the life that these characters are living that is soon about to change? I guess is it like a conscious decision to do that? I guess so. I mean, certainly when I was sitting in those prolonged shots, you you begin to study not the people but everything else. Yeah. So you know, like. I was looking at the immensity of the candles in, in some of those yeah. ballroom shots. There's just fucking thousands of them, and they're all individually lit, and they're all lighting up areas and whatever, and it's just kind of staggering. And and the the impressive thing about it is, at this point in the narrative, when we get there, um, Fabrizio is doing the exact same thing. He's not participating in the party or the ball. He is instead taking in everything and he's becoming introspective and like looking at the situation and where he and his family are and is like True. almost taking one final look I guess almost at, at the extravagance and the waste of fullness and like what it all is yeah he is an observer just like we are yeah yeah true that's that's cool yeah. that's a nice read on that but, mm. but we are talking about the end of the film um, a lot yeah yeah so <laughs> so let's well, it, I will say I will say it is every single uh, article or essay I read on this film, most of it is written about that opulent last 45, 50 minute yeah, that, ballroom sequence. It's all leading up that's to like that. The, that's like the glory shot. It's all leading up yeah. to that. Yeah, I mean that was, I I liked the film when I got up to the ballroom sequence, and then I loved the film while I was watching that ballroom sequence. Yeah, I'm intrigued because because like we we initially said this, it takes a little while to kind of get moving. Um, 
when was there a specific point for you where you were like, all right, you've you've got my attention. Like I'm I'm invested. I'm interested. and I want to see where this goes. It was basically when uh, Don Caligero came in, who's the uh, very successful. Well, he's he is he a trader? He's he's the mayor, isn't he? No, he's the he's the the son of Angelica, and he's a successful trader, is he not? He's part of the free market, um, the new order of of things. The man that was successful as a result of his tradings. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I mean that's the crux of of the theme. It's it's you know. Move, move out of the way, monarchy. It's time for, it's time for capitalism and the free market to govern the people. Um, and, that's, and that's the meat. So previously to that, I was watching you know, some very spectacular um, sequences with the rebels versus the military and whatnot. And I was enthralled and it looked amazing, but it wasn't until Don Caligari came in that I was like, okay, this is the themes of the film. Yeah. And now I'm kind of glued to my seat. This is where we're going. Mm. Yeah, and it was uh, the hunting scene for me was where it's like, it's just you, when, you know, the prince has figured out like, oh, the, the tides are turning, let's, you know, we have to adapt now. And essentially starts to sprinkle out like the information about that he's aware of it and this is what he's planning on doing to kind of affect change within his own ranks, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah basically the same. It's quite, this is a kind of, uh, it's an essay. This film is, is really going to turn into an essay soon. I think maybe the best way to mm-hmm. to cover off on the themes of the film um, is to really just go one by one through the characters because, as I said, the plot moves kind of slow, but, of course, like the themes are the, so grand. Um, so would you say that Prince Don Fabrizio is a man that is obviously part of the... Tra- the pr- old traditions and he's you know a part of the nobility um but he's kind of got no problem with letting it die off in a way he seems to be living vicariously through his his nephew who's definitely fine with um, moving away from the traditions old traditions i think he he becomes aware that that is like not in the like initial beginning of the film i'd say about it's once they arrive at the country estate I think is when he starts to real and they've gone through the roadblocks and he's seeing how the country is actively changing and hearing about Tancredi's uh, fighting with the the militia and things I think that's when the the change in him starts I think initially we he's a very it's he's the regal kind of figurehead that is like you know the represents the monarchy and everything as well as his own individual family and it's just all lush opulence like we're all praying and like you know that whole opening thing when they're like doing the rosary and like there's the people screaming outside and it's like shush like we we ignore that out there <laughs> like yeah, yeah. We're, we're in here doing our practices and then slowly as the film kind of isolated yeah yeah and you know then indifferent to any of the causes mm, just because and he makes that a giant point of Sicily itself is not ever going to change because they think of themselves as perfect. So they they refer to themselves as gods and things. <laughs> so it's he he very much represents that ideal at the beginning of the film, and then you know it, the film is then about his change and his shift in his ideals. Mm. Well, then because he's following uh, Tancredi as his nephew, who's. I mean, he's part of that class, but he's also very happy. I mean, he goes to fight with the rebels, 
uh, and directly effectively fights his own class. I, I get the sense that uh, initially when Tancredi is going to go off and fight the rebels, they're all very kind of skeptical, like, oh, you know, it, it's that romanticized idea of going off to fight in a war and to the point that the prince like gives him like a bunch of money to be like, here you go, buy supplies and look after yourself and you go have fun playing war. But then when he finds out it actually, you know, he fought and he got injured and stuff and the effect that the fighting and the splintering of the country is actually having is when he start his eyes start to open up a bit to what's happening. Hmm. And that's when I think, like, initially I think he's living vicariously through Tancredi as a young man, just as, like, recapturing his youth and, like, the exuberance of life and things. And, you know, I remember when I used to go off and, you know, fight and, like, get into duels and whatnot. Um, And now... He doesn't really much like his son. It seems like he's very... No, not at all. You know, like, there's really no sequence in the whole film where (laughs) Don Fabrizio is giving any kind of love to his son. Yeah, he's just there. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, shit, if my nephew looked like Alain Delon, I would just be like, yep, I like this one better. (laughs) um, That's so shallow, Christopher. (laughs) Yeah, what can I say? I'm a shallow man. Um, (laughs) um, But it changes for him, like, when, you know, then he shifts from kind of viewing Tancredi as like, ah, you know, the youth exuberance kind of, I, I, I remember that time into, oh, shit, you actually are... You can be my conduit for the younger generation and the shifting that's happening within the country. And I'm just going to kind of... That's when he becomes... Like, his investment in Tancredi shifts. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even Tancredi has decided to to join the rebels. He comes back and then he decides, you know what, I'm not going to marry my cousin like everybody else is doing. Mm. I'm going to join... Which, uh, can we red flag that for a sec? That's weird. The the cousin marriages. (laughs) Because that was something that... Yeah, because that happens in the Godfather Part Three, and I always found that so fucked up. Like, <laughs> just like why? What? What? It is weird. <laughs> and then seeing that, and then yeah, seeing that it is, it turns out it was a massive thing in Sicilian culture. I guess there's a sequence in the ballroom where Fabrizio's just looking at all of those cousins, the married, the ladies, just fooling around in that one room, and it's just this fucking a crazy cousin party. I suppose I don't know what's going on really. But. And it's, it's just like a broom full of chickens. They're all just like, oh, nah, 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 nah. it's just like <laughs> making noise. And it just, I was waiting for him to just like snap and be like, I have a fucking headache. Can you shut up? <laughs> he seems to not mind. He's, I mean, he's looking at him. I suppose in that moment, he's looking at him and going, well, this is going to be a thing of the past. Yeah, I almost viewed it as, like, him, that scene where, like, that part of the scene where he sits down and he's just kind of mopping his forehead and surveying it all, and he's just, like, I got the sense, like, (laughs) Burt Lancaster's performance made me just think, like, oh, God, we're not going to make it, (laughs) like, as a a society, this is fucked, like, we need to check. That's why he's got a back ten crady. Yeah, yeah, and that's why he then spends so much time looking at that wonderful painting and becoming super introspective about, like... Did I fuck up? Like, did 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 we squander? <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot going on there because it's not like the his family is dying. It's just transitioning. So they're very happy yeah. to go with the flow. Um, Tancredi is very happy to marry Angelica, who is the, the daughter of um, this very successful trader. So they're just, there's not a, it's, it's a death in a way, but it's also like a rebirth. 
But the, but the problem, I I think he views it as a death because it is all they've ever known, and for him to shift so drastically, it is as it, it is essentially his way of life dying. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I found I found it super interesting actually. Like in the, the little bit of research, did you hear about the actual ending of the book? I know that. Do you read anything about? I, that? I haven't read it, but I know that um, that there's the film ends earlier um than the than the book does so there's a bunch of stuff after what happens at the end of the film yeah yeah so the movie essentially um eliminates all of the epilogue of the book uh which skips ahead about 20 years from after post the wedding ball um and shows the death of elderly uh prince fabrizio uh and he's living in squalor and poverty um and he has uh conchetta his daughter there looking after him um yeah but uh, the film ends on a less bleak note, uh, but it still kind of foreshadows his death by kind of, you know, having him walk off into the slums of Sicily at the end. Yeah, it's a strong symbol to finish on. Uh, but, but, I mean, that's interesting. The book is, is really hammering at home. Like, he, he, is, he is dead. <laughs> his culture is dead. Yeah, he, he died poor and living in filth, and the only person that still stuck around him was his daughter, who was scorned by Tancredi, which also kind of adds this new other element there where she's like, I don't find myself in this new society, so I will stay with the old ways and die with them, which is a nice little... Gives her some some nice business to happen there with her character. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, I, I, I kind of like... I don't know... I prefer, I prefer the ending of the film. It's a bit more. Yeah, it, it it's not hammering it over the over you. Yeah, yeah, it's not hammering you over the head with it, and it's kind of letting it just kind of happen, and you be okay with it, I guess. Yeah, you don't need to see the the poor man living in some <laughs> shithole. <laughs> no, no, it's enough and to have him walk down dying a on like a rotten yeah, dying <laughs> on a rotting mattress on the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't, it's fine. I can look at him walk down the alleyway, and I get the picture. I mean, it, it would be super interesting to see how Visconti would do it, like, shifting from the absolute opulence of the palaces and stuff to just all of a sudden, like, there's a shit bucket next to a mattress on the floor. Yeah, just, like, <laughs> have the ballroom sequence and match cut it to, like, him mm. next to his piss pot. And... Well, uh, th- there was an amazing scene with piss pots, actually. Did you did you notice that? Like, when he... It's, like... Yeah, that, that was beautiful. Like, this little reference of, like, him just looking in and seeing, like, just this room full of filthy chamber pots and then, like, scanning and looking out over the party and just being like, ugh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, wonderful little sequences like that. There's a lot of piss. I, I, you don't think about those things. You look at the ballroom sequence like that set in 1860, you don't think about, where's everyone pissing? Because they're fucking drinking. Yeah, yeah. And they're up until dawn and things. Like, it's nuts. <laughs> um... It, it's it's a super interesting film in that, like, we, regardless of how we start going, discussing something, we always keep ending up back at the ball <laughs> at the end, because it's, it is essentially the first two hours of this film are essentially, if you look at it like a game, it's just like setting up the chess pieces of, like, everything that's going to happen, and then the ballroom scene is the actual match. Yeah. It's like, mm. um, I don't want to... I shouldn't. Re- I shouldn't compare it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but <laughs> it's like getting to. It's like getting to Endgame. The ballroom sequence is Endgame, and everything else is is the setup. 
yeah, you, you're sitting there and you're just kind of going through everything to get to this giant thing and where it all comes together. Yeah. It's it's more epic than than the Marvel Cinematic Universe as well. I'm going to say that. Oh, that, that, yeah, I, I 100% agree. And the funniest thing would be if... I, I would love to do a video essay where you just like... The end. The last forty-five minutes of the leopard is way more epic than the ending of Marvel, like the Avengers Endgame, and just see the hate flow in from the internet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that'd actually be really fun. Yeah, that that that's the most <laughs> wankiest video on YouTube ever. If you ever do that, it'd be no, but it'd be fucking hilarious just to see all the the trolling comments and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good one. Let's do it. That'll be our first mm. Patreon. <laughs> our first yep. Patreon piece of content. <laughs> Comparing the leopard to Avengers Endgame. <laughs> <laughs> nah. Yeah. Um, do we want to continue going through the characters, I guess? Or have we have we kind of... I think we've nutted out uh, Prince Fabrizio, essentially, like, that he is... That, like, he is the crux of the film. Like, it is about his journey and his transformation and his understanding from... Of what's happening with the country, he's the allegory of like shifting from a regal sensibility into a more modern and allowing that to happen. Um, so, do we want to have a look maybe at Tang Credit? Yeah, I mean, well, we're kind of going over him too um, throughout it all. We've already discussed the, his decision to join the rebels and his decision to marry Angelica. I mean, he's truly in love with her, so it's mm-hmm. it's also his decision to marry Angelica. It's his own decision in that it seems like. In the old traditions, you would be given a cousin to marry, and that's what you do. Yeah. Um, but he's he's running his own, running his own race. And that that as well, like the I guess it the the incestual relationship stuff, like helps add in the extra element of how insular that society is. Like it is like that. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's uncommon to marry outside of the family, even. Yeah, but even. Don Fabrizio is basically in love with Angelica. We're going to head back to the ballroom now because there's that really great sequence with the three of them in the library mm. uh, while Don Fabrizio is looking at that, that painting of the dying man and he's talk- thinking about himself as a dying man and culture as a dying man and his, his own culture as a dying entity. Um, and then his nephew comes in with Angelica and they're both... It's almost like a love triangle for a moment. I, 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 yeah, somewhat. I, I kind of viewed it as, um, like the fleeting kind of glances and moments that he, that Fabrizio has with Angelica, I viewed as the old him and mm-hmm. the jealousy and the remembrance of youth and the exuberance and the old ways. And then him making the decision to not dance that specific dance with her, which is like a fun uppity da- like up grooving dance that young people would do and just like stepping aside and being like, no, I will do a waltz with you though, mm-hmm. is him understand. And like, that's the signifier of like, not like kind of shifting away. It, it's again, that kind of stuff. Like he's the awkwardness of that scene is, I think the, like drawing the parallel of his change and his yeah, growth. I, there's, he decides to like Angelica kisses Don Fabrizio and it's almost like he's, the young, the person, his younger self is relishing that, but it's time to, to move on. It's time to not, not do, like, yeah, <laughs> this yeah, isn't it's, a thing it's, it's like the death of, the, the complete death of his, his, uh, his younger days, the, the old ways. It's like, it was nice, but it's over. 
Yes, exactly. We're moving um, on. <laughs> so, yeah. So I, but, I, I don't um, know. That, I mean, go on. Uh, I I was gonna say I enjoy Tank Tancredi quite a bit because of his kind of go with the flow of it and the advantageous nature in which he he's going with everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, he's the, ambitious, but he's also he's he's. He is really just going with the flow. He's like, this is the, yeah. the time we're living in and I'm taking advantage of it. Like the, the, the shifting from fighting with the militia to fighting with the actual army and stuff with just such a carefree attitude and his change of ideals. The he, Him like representing, well, times are changing. I need to adjust and adapt to be on the right side of it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, he's just a self-actualized guy. That's yeah, I see it. brilliantly played by uh, Alain Delon. Um from uh, we uh, Le Cerche Rouge, if you remember. I do not, but that's okay. Uh, the the one where it's like the guy the, who escapes from prison hides in the boot of his car oh, and then they do shit. a heist together. Oh, yeah, that, we, we watched that yeah. not too long ago. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, yeah. So, Alain Delon, who plays uh, Tancredi, is the guy who's driving the car. Okay. And, like this fucking cool pimp motherfucker in like the trench coat and Holy stuff. Holy shit, yeah, that's right. Well... I mean, shit, that, that's a good opportunity now to bring up the fact that we have, I mean, Alain Delon, French actor, um, Burt Lancaster, American actor, uh, at, amongst Italian, all doing Italian film, being dubbed. Like, it is a multicultural affair, this that's one. That's just the Italian way, right? I mean, even up into the, the 90s, when they were making kind of straight to VHS shit movies like, um, I don't know, Chicken Park. I remember watching Chicken Park, which was a ripoff of um, Adam's family and <laughs> that movie's Jurassic Park. That was so bad. But the but it's multi. <laughs> that yeah, is it's very terrible. Bad. Very very bad. I thought it was funny when I was a kid, but mm. shit. Um, yeah, it's a spoof movie that is ripping off spoof movies. Like they spoof the sex scene from Hot Shots in it. <laughs> very meta. <Yeah. laughs> it's like, what are you doing? This is like a snake eating its own tail. Very experimental. But yeah, it, it, <laughs> um, that's just the Italian way. Sergio Leone is doing the same thing a lot of the time. And, and I think as well by securing an American actor as well, like that helped him secure, I think, $3 million from Fox to help make the film. So, And it makes it more viable and, you know, more appealing. And cross- like, it, like, yeah, it's, it is just like the Marvel Avengers films. Like, you got to, like, you know, have something for every market. <laughs> yeah. Got to get that foreign market. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But Scotty I, was ahead of the curve. Yeah, sure. Oh, certainly. <laughs> um, in more ways than, than what Disney does. Uh, 20th Century Fox did, did do this 20-minute reduced cut for the American audiences, though. Um, I, I think it, I read that they, they cut it without the knowledge of Visconti um, under the supervision of Burt Lancaster, and I think there was some suing going on and some counter-suing and whatnot. And I'd read um, Scorsese's comments on that because that was the first version he initially saw. And when it came out in the US, it kind of got really shitty reviews um, because I think by trimming it out, you by truncating it all, you're not you need it to take its time to get there and kind of have this journey with this character. And by trimming it out, you're kind of like it, it makes it miss the point to some degree. And you're like, ah, oh, okay, and. I think, um, you know, you've got Burt Lancaster actually speaking in English with his real voice that was recorded on set, and then you've got all the other actors dubbed into shitty American voices, so it just was... Do you uh, hear the differences? Because I, I don't really want to watch that version. It sounds... From all accounts, it's shit, no, so I don't no. want to watch it. 
Uh, critics say it's shit, and yeah, Tony um, says it's shit. So, I don't, I don't know. It is available in the Criterion Edition, actually. Of course, it is. They're going to have all the. Yeah, it 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 comes with both versions. So. But uh, I actually watched the trailer of this film. Um, have you seen the trailer? No, no, like the American trailer. It is. Yeah, it's quite unusual, and you can pull a little recording here of of the trailer and put it in because it's it's Burt Lancaster sitting on a desk addressing the audience saying that sometimes people just make a remarkable film and you got to watch it. And that's the trailer. And then it kind of goes through. It's, it's very weird because I think it's like, don't, he's saying that it's an Italian movie, but, you know, don't worry, 20th Century Fox is <laughs> Don't on let this. that put you off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's All unusual. Right. But, but yeah. that's, I'll, it's I'll give it a watch trailer. and I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll drop in a little bit of the audio here. Hello. Occasionally a role and a picture are so impressive that we behind the camera want to shout about it from the rooftops. I have just been privileged to work in such a picture. The film is the letter from the celebrated bestseller and it provides one of the most challenging roles it's ever been my good fortune to portray. The beautiful Claudia Cardinale and Alan Delon are also starred under the masterful direction of Lucchino Visconti. Uh, also the score, which is Nino Rota. Nino Rota? Yeah, I... I noticed there was one part in particular that really sounded like the proto-Godfather theme. Um, I think it was right after uh, Fabrizio, like, explodes at, um, when he's out hunting with that other guy and, like, wanders off. They've got a little bit of the mm-hmm. kind of music playing, and I was like, oh, fuck, all right, this is very familiar. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize it was Nino Rotor until after the film and the, the credits popped up, but uh, fucking, it's good spot. Ah. Very, very, very good score, obviously. Yeah, it's he, he apparently did them back-to-back, this and, eight and a, the score for Eight and a Half, so he was just on a roll. Yeah, yeah I think he's comparable to, I don't know, nearly as good as John Williams. Mm. D- different, but, like, yeah, he, he's a master of different, scores. Different, but his, his scope is fucking huge, and it's always there's always these fucking bangers. And uh, yeah, all, after the other. always iconic as well. Like, you know a Nino Rotta score as soon as you hear it. <laughs> Similar to, like, a John Williams score. I don't know. Nino, Nino Rota's like the, the art house John Williams. Yeah. Or the Italian John Williams, essentially. I suppose, yeah. But Nino Rota does more than just Italian pictures, right? Yeah. Well, I'd say it's him and Ennio Morricone are, like, the two big Italian film composers. Mm-hmm. That's mm. true. I do, I do very much appreciate Ennio Morricone. Mm. Um. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is, is there anything major we haven't covered yet or I mean goes without saying the cinematography is fucking top notch it's 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 a gorgeous film to look at I mean and you know if you're not into watching a three and a quarter hour long slow moving epic um it's it's so good to look at that it makes it you know even if you're not connecting with the story you're like this sure as hell looks pretty for me it dragged a little bit here and there but at no time did I give a shit. Uh, yeah, because it's so good to yeah, look at. It's it's staggering. Uh, what's the, do you know what the budget was? Because the set design, um, the the costume design is fucking outstanding. The set design is outstanding. It's just populated with just the most what I would expect to be millions and millions of dollars worth of stuff. Uh, I believe it was about three million dollars in 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 nineteen sixty three. In 1963. I'm going to do a little inflation 
1963. And, and as well, remember, like, filming in Sicily and Italy where they can kind of do things non-union and cheaper, I'm assuming, back then. How much? Three million? Yeah. Okay, that's um, $25.36 million in 2020. Yep. So I guess, but it's as well, like, they're using established locations. They're not building those places. They're actually going into these old castles and opulent mansions and just filming, I guess, like, and like I said, non-union and things would help, so... But it's the kind of thing where the government would even step in and be like, do you want to borrow some shit from our museums? Because this is going to be a historic yeah. Italian piece. Um, and can, and I did read stuff. as well that none of the actors had trailers except for Alain Delon. And they, because apparently Visconti was a little bit kind of frosty and at odds with Burt Lancaster at the beginning. So he didn't give him a trailer or a dressing room. He was like, no, you fucking stand over there and wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. It's the Italian way. Yeah, but I mean, Burt Lancaster is amazing in this film. Um, I I had no idea he was in it until the... Like, I went into this one totally blind, um, other than knowing it was a classic Italian kind of epic. And then when you see in the credits, Burt Lancaster, I was like, wait, what? The Birdman of Alcatraz is in this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, a hunsucker from Sweet Smell of Success? Like, Jesus Christ, yeah, okay. Quite sure. And And I looked, this is like... Yeah, it's like two years after him winning an Oscar, and... Um, I think he got nominated for like three or four Oscars in the 60s, like kind of in and around this film. So he was hot shit at the time. Like he was a big, big deal. Um, it'd be like getting Joaquin Phoenix to like be the lead in uh, like bizarre little French epic or something like, you know, so it'd be an odd choice, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's he did a fucking fantastic job, so. Yeah, you, you scoff well, at yeah, my parallels. I, I was trying to work out like a better one. Maybe getting like, I don't know. Philip Seymour Hoffman, if he was still around? Yeah, okay. I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a, an interesting, like really, really yeah. loved character actor, I guess. Who isn't like, you know, Someone Sam a bit Rockwell than or something. <laughs> yeah, or just more kind of... <clears throat> has more gravity to them, I guess. Like, not to say that Sam Rockwell... I love Sam Rockwell, but whenever you see him, you're like, ah, oh, this is going to be fun. It's like Christian... Even if he's playing it... It's like Christian Bale or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a good example. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, <laughs> the, whole, the whole cast was a fucking amazing. I, I have, like, a massive thing for Claudia Cardinal, so um, she is always just electrifying whenever she is on, on the screen. She does so um, much with... And plus, I mean, I just love... Once Upon a Time in the West so much that I, I didn't know she was in, so she popped up. I was like, holy fucking shit. This is great. Yeah, now I'm very engaged. Yeah, because that's like your favorite film, isn't it? Yeah, that's my favorite film of all time, I would say. Mm, yeah. And it's she's so good at just commanding attention with just a look. Like, mm-hmm. she doesn't have to do anything in a scene other than, like, turn her head and look, and you're like, oh, fuck. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, she's perfect. Mm. Um, and and she's she's always. I mean, she obviously looks stunning, but she's all she's always commanding a scene um, dramatically as well. So, mm. um, I guess anything else, or do we jump into some trivia? Have we covered everything in your notes? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, like just I mean, summarizing this film, it's it's a long, beautiful walk that you take that ends like so rewardingly 
Like, it is just worth it for that last hour. It, it's so mm. wonderful. And the, the journey you go on with these characters is top-notch. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think, like, we're a little worried, like, fuck, three and a quarter hours, and we said we'd get this episode out, kind, you know, on the new <laughs> schedule of dropping fairly recently, like, oh, God, all right, and it's like, no, nope, this was fine. Yeah, it took a, lo- a while to do my research, I think, just because it's kind of a history, it's, it's mm. very rich in history, so I didn't want to, you've got to spend that extra time, I yeah. think, on, on trying to get the me- most out of the film. But we actually, we haven't even talked about the, the title, The Leopard. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. I... I didn't really quite understand. I mean, they talk about we were the leopards and the lions. Um, those who will take over our place will be the jackals and sheep. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess the lions and leopards, kings of the jungle. It, it, it's jackals it's and a, sheep. Are, are, are yeah, it's a dig at the class structure. It's you know, yeah. you know, lions and leopards being the regal, like you said, the the upper class, and then. Jackals and sheep being the lower class, and that kind of shifting of where the power is going to go, essentially. Okay. And it's him kind of coming to terms with it. Yeah. Okay. Is he referred to Don Fabrizio? Is he referred to as a leopard or a lion at all, or he just talks? He just sees the nobility as the leopards and lions. Yeah, it's just that uh, that one little monologue he has when he's talking to um, after he's been offered the senator position and things. Like it's just that, and then. The title is then extrapolating from that, referring to him as the leopard, essentially, like the conduit or like the representation of that. It's, he's looking down upon the new way then if he's considering everybody else as jackals and sheep. Um. It's, I mean, because that is all he's ever known is the idea that if you're from a lower status than me, then you are not as good as me. But the fact that he's coming to terms with, well, that's not going to be the case anymore and you're going to have to step aside and he's willing to do that, I guess, is that's that's the yeah. growth. And that's like the message is like you you can view and he he's talking about it not as a good thing as well. He It's coming right off the heels of him saying that Sicilians are like consider themselves perfect and gods and the issue with change occurring in Italy and then it affecting Sicily is the fact that Sicily itself will never change because they think it's perfect. Yeah. But even even Don Caligaro, yeah. uh, the wealthy trader, who's basically a mod today would be it'd be analogous to today's like billionaire. Um, so Don Fabrizio think would would call him even even him a jackal in sheep. Um, am I gonna am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think so. Um, because he's not of kind of nobility or that he, he's he's a made man. He he's got his status by like he was born mm. into as a sheep or a jackal and has built himself up into high society so he's not actually from that tribe yeah. of leopards and lions and things yeah. like he's he's managed to get in he, there but he's not that yeah. he certainly doesn't know how to act like a leopard or a lion or at least we're really talking about nobility because he's flustered and confused half the time wears his tails to uh, like a dinner <laughs> not knowing yeah yeah um, uh, Paola Stopper is, is his name, the actor. He does yeah. a fucking good job as well. Oh, yeah, everyone um, in this it's, film. It's kind of, it's kind of funny because now I, I suspect today there'd be plenty of billionaires out there in the world um, that would consider themselves the leopards and the lions and uh, the rest of us jackals and sheep. Not all yeah. of them, some, some of them. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> it's something that still definitely exists. 
Yeah. So, I, yeah, it's like, depends on your point of view, I suppose. Hmm. Um, I want to go back to just one little thing before we kind of wrap up and go into trivia is initially you kind of compared it to, um, Salvatore Giuliano, um, and it's similar in the regard that it's also a really rich Italian history film, whereas with Salvatore, we had a tough time kind of getting into that one, Mm -hmm. uh, because we didn't know the history, whereas... This one is dealing with equally important history of Italy, yet was way more accessible for us, I, I thought. Yeah, I can... Like, I, everyone has been ruled by somebody at some point, um, whether whether it's an actual king or, you know... Yeah. So, it's very relatable um, and universal. Yeah, I was able to get into this one a lot easier than I was... Uh, Giuliano just mainly on a pure historical level as well like being like okay I don't need to know the specifics of the Italian history here I just need I, I get the idea of what we're discussing here and I can go with it's, this it's there's there's hardly any <clears throat> plot it's just it's just character stuff yeah it's great it's great yeah um well, well on that note do you want to hear a little bit of trivia sure uh, so the film won the Palm Door at the 1963 Cannes Film Festival. Uh, it was also nominated for an Academy Award for Best Costume Design Color uh, at the 1964 Oscars, uh, a Golden Globe for Most Promising Newcomer for Elaine Delon, and was listed as one of the top foreign films of the year by the National Board of Review. Um, I have some stuff about the casting and how I'd mentioned that uh, the frosty relationship between Visconti and Lancaster. Mm-hmm. Um, Visconti wanted to cast Nikolai Cherkasov uh, as the prince. Um, he had previously appeared in Eisenstein's uh, Ivan the Terrible and Alexandra Nevsky, which we did way back when. Um, so an older Russian actor. Um, uh, however, he refused to take the roles. Uh, Lancaster later told film critic Roger Ebert they wanted a Russian, but he was too old. Then they wanted Laurence Olivier, but he was too busy. When I was suggested, Visconti said, oh no, a cowboy? Huh. Um, but he had just finished making Judgment at Nuremberg, uh, which Visconti saw, and he needed $3 million, which 20th Century Fox would give them if they used an American star, and so inevitably, uh, Lancaster was cast. Um, he was also a, the entire budget was given yeah. to Visconti from 20th Century Fox mm-hmm. okay. for, for casting Burt Lancaster essentially um, All right. Uh, Visconti was disappointed that the producers of the film insisted on casting Lancaster uh, because he felt he wasn't really right for the role uh, this caused tension between the two during the first few weeks of filming um, apparently Visconti treated him really harshly uh, and which led to Lancaster eventually uh, publicly confronting him on the set uh, Visconti was so impressed with the passion and the sincerity that Lancaster displayed during his tirade that the two developed a, f- a close and amicable relationship and remained friends for the rest of their lives. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's, yeah. that's beautiful. I thought that was shit. pretty great. Uh, yeah, Lancaster then would go on to work uh, in a couple more films with him as well, so it's pretty good. Holy shit. That's a lovely story. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the only other thing is uh, this is included on Roger Ebert's Great Movies list. Yeah, he gave it four stars. I think any critic would be kind of 100% wowed by it, so... Yeah, it's super interesting to see, actually, the critical response and the change between the initially released version in the US, like the cut-down cut, cut down version. Um, I, I didn't... 
I didn't read the Abit review. Did you read that? No, no, not yet. I, I'm intrigued by it though. But yeah, apparently, like yeah, the the initial reviews were like uh, not great, <laughs> and um, it's just funny to see that how it's changed from you know that re-release of the full extended version. Everyone's like, oh wait, this is a fucking masterpiece. We we just didn't have the right version. <laughs> it's amazing what twenty minutes and a right cut can do. Hmm. Uh, well, on that note, do you want to hear a little bit about the Criterion Edition itself? Sure. Uh, it's available as a two-disc Blu-ray set or a three-disc DVD set that comes with, uh, both, as we said, both versions, the um, extended full proper cut and the 161-minute American release, uh, an audio commentary by film scholar Peter Cowie, a dying breed, the making of the leopard, an hour-long documentary fe- featuring interviews with Claudia Cardinale, screenwriter Suso Chico D'Amico, uh, Rotuno, uh, filmmaker Sidney Pollock, and many more. A video interview with producer Joffredo Lombardo. New interview with Professor Millicent Marcus on the history behind the leopard. Original theatrical trailers and newsreels, as well as uh, stills, rare behind-the-scenes photos, and the usual booklet and essays that Criterion usually do. Yeah, it's pretty loaded. Yeah. It, good good version. Good edition, I think. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, great movie. What are we going to be doing next? We have another Pasolini film. Uh-huh. Uh, I think the... I don't know if we did any of his other films beyond Salo. Yeah. Oh, it's a, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not the same as Salo, I, I don't believe, but it's, uh, it's called the Mama Roma from 1962. So we're staying in Italy, but we got some Pasolini. Yeah, I suspect different kind of subject matter. I, I, yeah. I like... Salo is yeah. a specific I, type I of... like Salo a lot. Yeah, so. it's a good... Um. It, it's a good film and a very well-made film. It's just got some real rough stuff yeah. in there. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think at the time I'd given it the, the, my pick of the best films... Um, out of our last tenant at that stage. Yeah, it's it's so. a very good film, but it's just also, yeah. <laughs> um, it's also got people eating shit in it. Yeah, exactly. It, with you know, and food with nails in it, and you know, lots of that stuff. Um, but I guess that'll probably wrap us up for this week's episode, looking at the leopard. Um, yeah, we'll be back in a couple of days' time with Mama Roma. But um, yeah, if you have any comments, queries, feel free to send us an email at thecriterionquest at gmail.com. Also, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'd love to hear some suggestions about uh, maybe some Patreon stuff that you'd like to see. And we'll hopefully have more info about that for the next episode. Um, also, you can follow me on Twitter at Criterion Quest. Um, otherwise, I guess that's about it. Cool. Yeah, for this week's episode, I'm Chris. And I'm Tom. See you next time.